stand up. We're going to get ready to worship Jesus Christ this morning here at MPI. And uh, before we, you know, get into praising God and, you know, giving him all the praise and hallelujahs and reading the words out of the karaoke screen, you know, we always want to start out with a testimony, amen? It's always good to have a testimony because that's increased our faith. Our sister here, Stephanie Santoya, has a testimony for this morning. Amen. Let's give her a hand. Amen. Good morning, everybody. It's good to be here and see you guys, all you wonderful faces. Amen. Well, um, my testimony is that, you know, throughout my whole life, I never found purpose or worth in, in myself. And when I came to God, he showed me everything that I am to him and his acceptance and his love. And I'm just so grateful that for that this morning, because where would I be without him right now? Like, I could never imagine myself now in Bible college, my first year, going and getting excited for my second year. And, you know, I am nobody to be up here, but you know what? Like, I remember reading a scripture about um, how we, are, we have these treasures in these jars of clay. Like, jars of clay are not very significant. They break easily, and they're, they're basically worthless. But you know what? God takes those jars, and he turns them around into beauty. And, oh, my goodness, I just, right now, I'm just like, overwhelmed kind of just speaking to you guys but I just want to encourage you guys just to worship God just to seek him because when you seek him he, you will find him and I just want to encourage you guys just to not hold back but to give everything to God today right now where you're at you know Psalms, Psalms 150 says um, let everything that has breath praise the Lord you're alive here today in front of me amen God has a purpose and a plan for your life so I just want to pray right quick before we worship. Father God, I just thank you for this wonderful opportunity, God, just to be amongst your, your body, oh God, your brothers and our brothers and sisters in Christ, God. And I pray that in this time, Lord, you would shift the atmosphere, oh God, that you would set captives free, God, that you would bring the lost to you, God, that you would make disciples, oh God, that you would, Holy Spirit, just move in this time. I ask for freedom, oh God, in this worship service, God, that people would let go, God, and let you do what you do, Father. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Hallelujah. Put your hands together this morning. Call me sing that love explode. Let love explode and bring the dead to life. A love so bold to bring a revolution. Somehow, let love explode and bring the dead to life. Come on, sing it out. A love so bold to bring a revolution. Somehow, now I'm lost in your freedom. Oh, this world I overcome. My God's not dead, He's surely alive Cause He's living on the inside Rolling like a light My God's not dead, He's surely alive Cause He's living on the inside Rolling like a light yeah.
Come on, sing, let hope arise. Let hope arise and make the darkness hide. Come on, shout it out. My faith is dead. I need a resurrection. Oh, somehow. Let hope arise and make the darkness hide. My faith is dead. I need a resurrection. Oh, somehow. Them lost in your freedom. Yes, oh Lord. Oh, this world's over. Come on, sing it out. My God's not dead. He's surely alive because he's living on the inside. Growing like a light. My God's not dead. He's surely alive because he's living. Come on, sing it out. My God's not dead. He's surely alive because he's living on the inside. Growing like a light. My God's not dead. He's surely alive because he's living on the ends. Rolling like a lion. Oh, he's rolling like a lion. Oh, come on, give him praise this morning. You're rolling, Lord. You're rolling like a lion. Oh, we sing it out to you, God. Rolling like a lion. like a lion God yes you're here in this place come on people he's in this place and just like this song is talking about he's roaring like a lion he's in this place his Holy Spirit he doesn't come just to show up he comes in power and in his presence there's a fullness of joy so God we offer you our praise Lord we believe and we know that you're in this place God, can you come and roar in this place like a lion? God, come and blow past our understanding of what we can know right now and just our feelings and our emotions, God. So much more than that. Come on, church, just begin to give him praise right now. Come on, just give you praise, Oh, my God. 
fun time talking about a God that's not like me, which reminds me of how good he is. Come on. This next song is called Relentless, and that's what God is. That's who, that's who he is. He doesn't give up on you. You know, many of us come to church, and, you know, we have this, not all of us, but some of us may come in, and they're like, man, Lord, it just feels like I didn't have a good week. Like, you still love me? <laughs> Or maybe you guys are having a great week and you come in like, man, God, I just haven't been feeling you as I normally have. Or maybe you're in this place and you say, man, I know God is good. I just felt more. Just keep singing the songs. <laughs> Whoever you may be in this place, God is constantly pursuing you. Amen. Even in this time right now, he's pursuing you. He's like, man, I want more of you. I'm coming right after you. And when we sing these songs and we proclaim about God, he's relentless. Come on, we remind ourselves and we actually are going after God. So I just pray, this is my prayer, as we sing these songs, that they become more than words in the screen, more than words on uh, the karaoke screen, but just your heart and your desire. So God, we pray for your people, God, right here in this sanctuary, God, that their heart would be like your heart, God, uh, relentless in their pursuit after you, God. So God, we come to you right now and... As we prepare to sing this song, God, we know that there's more happening than just us singing words on a screen than instruments playing. God, we know that your presence, God, comes in this place. And we ask you, Lord, that you would fill your people, God. Fill your people, Lord. Salvation sounds.
Church, don't wait on anybody for you to worship your God and your Savior.
Hallelujah, Jesus. We worship you in this place. We thank you, Lord, that you reign, God. We worship you in this time, God. Let's just give the Lord a shout on the count of three. One, two, three. Hallelujah, Jesus. We thank you. You are holy, God. You are worthy, Jesus. You are holy, God. We worship you in this place, God. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Hallelujah. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Be glorified, God. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, Jesus. Yes, he is worthy of praise. As you all remain standing, I would like to now dismiss the children. If the children would now go towards the sound booth to the child worker who is standing there. If they would wave their hand. There she is, Griselda. Go ahead and follow Miss Griselda this way towards the sound booth. Thank you. I want to welcome you to Metro Praise International. My name is Vanessa Vitali. I'm a pastor here. My husband and I lead the Encounter Night Life Group every Sunday night at 5 p.m. And right now, I would like to preach the gospel message to you out of John chapter 4. I believe that there is somebody in here who is dealing with shame. You're dealing with feeling like you've messed up too many times for God to forgive you or too many times for God to redeem you, but I'm here to share this message. I believe you're going to relate to the woman in this story. There was a woman in Samaria, and Samaritans were considered half-breeds. In the, in the old times, in Jesus' time, they were considered half-breeds because they were half-Jewish and half Gentile. In this day, they were socially unacceptable. And people avoided them. Jewish people avoided them at, at all costs. They would skip this town in Samaria. And Jesus, as he was traveling, determined 
that he would pass through this town. Everybody say determine. Jesus had a purpose in mind. He had somebody in mind. He had his heart on a mission when he passed through this town. And he went to a specific area in Samaria called Sicker. And when he went there, there was a woman drawing water. Now, when he went there, it was noon. Now, if anybody understands how the sun works, noon is not the time to be going out in the middle of a desert heat. The sun is the hottest between 11 and 12. This is how you could tell Jesus was determined to find the specific woman. And not only was he determined to find the specific woman, but this woman was obviously ashamed and hiding from those around her because she had determined to arrive at this well when no one was there. And when you, when you think about this woman coming at this well, let me actually just open it there. I know I don't have all the verses up there. But if you go to John chapter 4, if you have your Bibles, if you don't, that's okay. I'll read it to you. You can read it later. But starting in verse 10, actually in verse 9, the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jesus was asking her for water because of the heat and the sun. He was tired from his journey. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, Go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I could see you are a prophet. See, here Jesus recognized that he had something for her, but she needed to first be set free from the things she was doing, the shame that she was carrying from the, the many husbands that she had had, the adultery that she was caught in. She needed to recognize that, and Jesus came to show her, I have living water for you, regardless of all these things, but you need to come to me now and recognize who I am. When you go forward to verse 25, the woman said, I know that the Messiah called the Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. In verse 26, then Jesus declared, I am, I, the one speaking to you, am he. 
today. You might be like this woman at the well, hiding. You come in here and you feel like you're hiding. Maybe you're hiding in the back row. You're dealing with the shame of your past sins. Maybe like the woman at the well, you've committed adultery multiple times. Maybe you you self-mutilated. Maybe you have just left Jesus behind. You put him on the back burners. But he's saying today that he has living water for you. That he has something for your life that will satisfy you. Unlike the many relationships, unlike the many things that you've been investing your life into, your job will leave you thirsty. Your boyfriend and girlfriend will leave you thirsty. Your children will leave you thirsty. Everything in this world will leave you thirsty, but Jesus will satisfy your thirst. And if you accept Jesus today, and you acknowledge him as your Lord and Savior, he will well up inside of you and heal every crevice of your heart. He'll cover every broken piece of your life. He will fill your soul, and you will not thirst again. He will bring a satisfaction in you that you cannot find in the things of this world. So let's just pray. Jesus, we thank you, Lord God. We thank you, Jesus, that even though we've made many mistakes, you still are a God of second chances. And you reach out to us as we're in the the dirt and the filth of our life. God, and you say, I have mercy on you, and I have a plan for you. I have waters, living waters to fill you. I have a hope and a life for you. Jesus, I pray that whoever's heart is beating in their chest for you right now in this very second, Jesus, that they would raise their hands and that they would say, Jesus, I come to you. Jesus, I come to you. Jesus, you came after me in the heat of the day. You sought after me. So Jesus, I come to you. I receive you. I will not run any longer. Jesus, I pray that would be the heart cry of the people in this room, God. That whoever in here is dealing with shame, that the chains of shame would be broken right now in the name of Jesus. The chains of of condemnation broken in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name, amen. As you remain standing, I want to point out Ishmael and Robin. They are elders in our church. They are there to pray for you. If you felt God knocking at your heart, when our video goes on, our our greeting video, when you go around and greet people, I want you to go to them and ask them for prayer. If you felt God pulling on your heart. And right now the, the ushers are going to pass out the communion. Once a month, the first Sunday of every month, we like to do communion as a church together. We recognize it as an ordinance. And it's symbolic of what Jesus did for you. It's us taking the time to remember how he died on the cross. Hallelujah. If the ushers would go ahead and and pass out the communion. And if anybody in this place, you're dealing with anything. I mean, at any point, actually, you could go to Ish and Robin and ask for prayer. If you're feeling that distressed in your spirit. 
Hallelujah. If you would, you don't have to turn with me to this verse, but I just want to explain communion from the Bible's perspective. I'm going to be going to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter 9, actually. Hallelujah. Corinthians 11 verse 23 for I have received from the Lord what I also passed unto you the Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this is the cup it is the new covenant in my blood do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me for whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. So we're going to recognize the Lord's body and blood that was broken for us. You can take it with your families right now as the worship band goes ahead and plays a song.
the Lord a hand clap. It is so exciting to see everybody here. God is moving. Welcome to Metro Praise International. We just love the fellowship. If you have not noticed, we love hugs. We love love bonds. And we love you. Amen. My name is Nancy Wyrostic. If you don't know me, I'm one of the apostolic elders here. And we're excited about what God is doing in our lives, in this church, in this city. Our services are every Sunday at 10 a.m. And every Friday night at 7 p.m., we have our youth service. Elevate. Come on, make some noise. If you know any teenagers, make sure they come on Friday nights. And at this time, uh, I want to welcome all of our first-time visitors. If this is your first time, if you could just wave your hand in the air. Thank you for being with us here. This is our first time. Yes, amen. Clap it up for the visitors. If you have not received one of these, our ushers will give one to you. This is our brochure. Just some simple information about what we're about. And if you could fill out the bottom card and just drop it in the drop box, we would love to connect with you throughout the week. Our vision here is loving God and loving people, the two greatest commandments that Jesus uh, commanded for us oh, to follow, so we desire to do that with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. Say, loving God and loving people. And our discipleship strategy is threefold. We want to connect, mentor, and send. The way we connect you to the cross, connect you to Jesus, is through our weekly life groups. And in your handout, in the back, are all the places, times, and dates, and the type of life group we have for you to join specifically designed for your need, whether you're married, a single mom, a young adult. They're for anybody and everybody. Find a place to belong because we are a church of disciples that love to share life together. Amen. So we are here for you. And then we want to mentor you. We want to teach you how to live for Jesus. So our leaders are ready to take you through our 101 book. Welcome to your new life. It's one-on-one. Depending on your times of availability, our leaders will help you and teach you to grow in Christ. And then our 201 is a Sunday school class on Sunday mornings with Jared, Pastor Jared, and it's disciples that make disciples. And this is our leadership training class. We're going to raise you up and send you out because we want to send you out to evangelize. How many of you guys love telling people about Jesus? Come on, make some noise. We want to fulfill the Great Commission to go forth and preach the gospel to all the nations. And our goal is to have 100,000 disciples in Chicago with 50 churches and 500 around the world. If you believe we can do that by God's grace and power, say amen. Amen. God is moving in this place. We have a fun and exciting announcement. Our summer conference, Life in the Spirit. Say, Life in the Spirit. I hope that you guys have already blocked off these dates. It's this Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, August 9, 10, and 11. We are going to blow it up for Jesus. Friday night at 7 p.m. with Pastor Adam is going to be an evangelistic message. So bring all of your lost friends and loved ones, people that you know are not serving the Lord or backslidden. We want to pump this place up and just fill it out so the lost can hear the gospel. And then we have two sessions on Saturday, 10 a.m. and 2 p.m. Come, continue to get filled and grow in your faith so that we learn how to live life in the Spirit. And then our fourth session is Sunday morning, our usual time of meeting together, winning in the Spirit. And then we're going to have, after that service, outside in the parking lot, our picnic, barbecue, and baptism. So we want to just come out full force, giving God glory, and hear what he would have to say to us. Amen. How many of you guys are excited about the Life in the Spirit Conference? Amen. Praise God. At this time, we are going to prepare to give our tithes and offerings. 
replies in tithes and offerings it's very simple when we do not tithe and put God first in our finances we are robbing God and I want to share with you a statistic George Barner research in 2011 very quickly on a whole people are giving less to the church further Barner reveals that the national tithing rate has dropped to the lowest in 10 years and this was in 2011 so people are tithing the lowest that they have in 10 years span by estimation, approximately 4% of Americans practice tithing. 4%. That's a 40% decline in the past 10 years. So we as a nation, we as the body of Christ in America, we need to repent. The tithe belongs to the Lord. And I want to encourage those who have been giving faithfully to God, that God will continue to meet your needs according to his glorious riches. And we want to thank you for partnering, not with Metro Praise, but for the kingdom of God to advance on this earth. Amen. We believe it with all of our heart that the tithe belongs to the Lord and an offering is above that. We give that to our building fund or our missions because the nations need to hear about Jesus. Amen. Stand up to your feet with me as we prepare to come forward. Let's recite this scripture verse together. Luke 6:38. Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over, will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your faithfulness. We thank you, God, that you did not hold back your son, but you, you gave him up for the sins of the world. And now we live our life for your glory and for the fame of your name. I pray, God, that you would continue to bless and prosper your people. I pray that tithers will arise, God, and give you glory in their finances and all that they do for you, that we would come in unity with your vision, Jesus, with your commandments, with what you've called us to do so that we can see your kingdom come to this earth. Bless your people. Bring promotions, God, and raises and open doors of employment. Shut doors that need to be shut and open doors that need to be opened. God, favor your people in Jesus' name. And we thank you for what you're doing in Metro Praise and throughout the city. I pray that your name would be exalted, God, to the ends of the earth. We give you glory and we thank you, God, that you will meet our budget this month so that we continue to, that, so that we can continue to do what you've called us to do in Chicago and throughout the world. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said... Amen. Come forward as you give this morning. I'm giving you the things that pull me down. Jesus, can you teach me how to stand? And if I fall, I want to fall into your hands. So heal my
love Jesus. Can I get a woo? Woo! Come on, somebody. Look at your neighbor. Say, this is how we do it. <laughs> Welcome to church this morning. Man, are you guys happy to be here? I am excited, man. This is such a wonderful summer. I've been having a great time. I've been loving the cool weather. Everybody been enjoying that? Mid-70s, low-80s. God has been so good like that. And, uh, you know, I love you guys filling up the place on Sundays. I know you could be at the lake trying to fight to get that parking spot. You could be on the, you know, the golf course, wherever. But you came to church this morning. Would you just bless the Lord that the house is filled this morning? Come on. Amen. You're here. God is here. Amen. We're starting a new series this month, and I'm so excited about it. It's the life of purpose, discovering what you were made for. And this whole month, I want you to keep coming, bring in your friends, because we really just want to get into what God has for us. Why did God create us? Why did God put us here? What is his plan? And you may have been serving the Lord since a, a child. You may be experienced in this. This series is going to bless you, because it's going to take you to another level. Come on, everybody say, level. It's all right to have fun in church, Okay, we're smiling, we're having a good time. We're going to go to another level. If you've already been in church for a while, I've been serving the Lord almost 18 years, man. That's a long time, but I want to go to another level. And if you're new and you're just like, man, I'm new to the Bible, you know, I'm still reading the book of Job, you know, uh, is that the name of the book? No, the book of Job, right? And it, and it was Moses who built the ark, right? No, who built the ark? No, okay, so you all are listening, right? Peter got the Ten Commandments. Who got the Ten Commandments? Okay, so if you're just like confused right now, this series is especially for you. We're going to hook you up. We're going to give you the basics of how to serve God. So if you're new, you're going to go to a great place with God, establish a foundation. And if you've been experienced in Christ, you're going to go to another level. So this whole month, I want you to join with me here at church and then online, lifechangingdevotions.com. If you haven't visited there, check it out. I'm writing a 365 blog. One devotional a day with scripture reading through the entire Bible. It will be published in January 2014. So this whole year, 2013, I've been doing it. And thus far, this month, we've already, because it's already, uh, what, August 4th today? We've already tackled different subjects there. So every day this month, you can go there and get a devotional just on this subject, the life of purpose. Day one was, does God exist? I gave evidence for God's existence in that blog. You can go back and check it out. Day two, who is God? I explained it, and that's going to be kind of our message today. Day three, how does God want to speak to me? And then today, if you checked out the devotional, and if you still have time, you can check it out today, who am I? So everybody say, lifechangingdevotions.com. Bam, you got it. Open up your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 17. Good to see some friends here that are like family, haven't seen for a while. Some other friends that I just like family. It's just so good, man. I'm just excited to see everybody here. Love church. Oh, I got the greatest job in the world, amen. I get to talk to you guys about Jesus. Acts chapter 17 is a, a passage of Scripture where Paul is addressing pagans Greek believers and false gods about the true God and his son, Jesus Christ. And as we start this series, I want to take a message out of his passage here, out of Paul's words, and I want to call it, today's message is revealing the unknown God. Everybody say revealing the unknown God. Thank you. So turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter 17, and then we're going to start in verse 16. You can follow along up here. 
or in your own Bible. Acts 17, verse 16. If you're there, can you say, I'm there? Wonderful. Let's begin. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So what did Athens have full of what? Idols. Okay. My wife's family is Greek, comes from the Greek culture. My family is Italian, comes from the Italian culture. The Romans, you know, in Italy had conquered the Greeks, but they say in history, the Greeks conquered the Romans culturally. Uh, Italians, the Romans won militarily, but the Greeks conquered culturally. So the Romans identified with the Greek gods. The Greek language was their language of commerce and of business. And so whether it was education from the Greeks, religion, philosophy, the Romans were heavily influenced by this. So in Paul's day, he's living in a Roman society, but people think uh, uh, like Greeks. They're uh, looking to Greek gods and idols. And he's here in this city, Athens, that used to be the main city of Greece. But now it's been conquered by Rome. Is everybody tracking with me? Okay, now look at verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So we see that Paul's normal habit was to go to the church and explain Jesus and go to the, the streets and talk about Jesus. So we should be talking about Jesus in the church, right? How many think this is a good place to talk about Jesus? But how many know in the marketplace we should also talk about Jesus? You see, Paul went to the market, it says, as well. Everybody say, as well. Come on, as well in the marketplace day by day. So wherever you're going tomorrow, it's okay to talk about Jesus. Now, don't get fired. Don't be a fanatic, you know, and be like, Jesus, hallelujah, you know, and all this crazy stuff. But you know what? On your lunch break, you could talk about Jesus. If you get a promotion, you can say, man, I give all the glory to God. You can mention his name, and then you can follow up in your relationships, amen? Don't let this culture tell you you can't talk about Jesus. They're lying to you if they tell you that. Our dollar bill says, still says, in God we trust. So just show that to your boss and say, you're going after the greenback. I'm going after what's on the greenback, God. You're trusting in a dollar. I'm trusting in God. Hello, somebody. But just do it with grace and finesse. That's how Paul did it, in the marketplace and in the church. Now watch this, verse 18. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. And they said, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So now these guys, Epicureans and Stoics, dated back 300 years prior to Jesus. So Jesus is walking around right around 30 A.D. You know, he kind of split the time as we know it in the Western culture, you know, A.D. and B.C., before Christ, you know, and after his death. So he's walking around, and there's these philosophers who have been trained in debate, trained in rhetoric, being able to talk, and their teachings go back 300 years to 300 B.C. And so Paul is preaching the gospel, and they're like, man, what are you babbling about? What are you talking about? And I don't know about you, but sometimes in our culture, when we're talking about Jesus, people think we're out, we're out of our mind. Sometimes people think we're babbling. Sometimes people don't think we have anything to offer. That was like this in this day. These Greek philosophers ruled the city. They were the ones that would be like the Richard Dawkins, the Bart Ehrmans, uh, the Bill Mars on HBO. These were like the real smart people that everybody looked up to. And here comes Paul, and they want to embarrass him by publicly debating him, saying, we're just going to shame you. We're going to embarrass you. We're going to make you look like a religious fanatic because you believe some guy raised from the dead. Now, what do you think Paul's going to do when that debate starts? 
Do you think Paul's going to tuck his tail and go back to just church and say, you know what, I ain't got nothing to say to you guys. You're so smart. You guys are so good at philosophy. I'm intimidated. I'm going to go back and play make-believe, you know. I'm going to be like those Dungeon and Dragon type people where we believe in elves and wizards. I'm going to go back to the church and just make-believe angels and all of this stuff. No, Paul said, you want to get it on? Let's get ready to rumble. He's like, let's get it on. He's like, you bring out your best. You bring out the best you have, and I'll meet you wherever you want to go. Keep reading. And it says right here in verse 19, they took him and brought him to a meeting place, Aeropagus. It's also known as Mars Hill. Everybody say Mars Hill. Where they said to him, we want to know this new teaching that you are bringing. So Paul went to a hill, a place of debate. Basically, he's like going to Millennium Park where everybody would gather together to hear these Greek debaters discuss and talk, like going to the White House. Like he shows up at this main place, and he says, I'm going to tell you about Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. If Paul had boldness to talk about Jesus in front of all of these smart people, all of these PhDs in philosophy, and God gave him the words to say, shouldn't we have that same kind of boldness? We should be able to talk about our God and describe who he is. Now, I'm going to help some of you understand who your God is in just a moment by these teachings he uses because now he is going to convince them of his God, of Jesus, that he's the real God, the only God. But before I get there, I want you to see the context for already those of you who believe in Jesus. Remember, we're going to another what? Level. Remember, this is another level. And the next level for us is we need to do what Paul did. We need to be able to go into the marketplace, into the television, on Oprah Winfrey's show, baby. Come on, and talk about our God. We should do it in universities. We should do it wherever we have the opportunity and never be ashamed. Amen. It says, then they took him, brought him before this place. We want to hear what you're preaching. Verse 20, you are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And in verse 21, all the Athenians, these are the people of Athens, foreigners who would live there, spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest ideas. Doesn't this kind of sound like a political talk show or radio show? All they do is just talk and talk, Oprah Winfrey talk and talk, Dr. Phil talk and talk. It's like TV represents this place for us today where you go to TV, everybody's got their opinion, ancient aliens. Anybody ever see that? There's actually a religion that believes Jesus was an alien. Come on, there's people who actually think this. And then they have, have it on the History Channel, Discovery Channel, the Science Channel. Everybody's talking and talking. But Paul's like, let me tell you the truth here. Let me get through all of that white noise, all of that confusion, and bring the truth. Because when Jesus walked here on the earth, he didn't say, I'm one of a hundred ways. He didn't say, me and Buddha and Krishna, we're going to the yellow brick road to see the wizard. He said, it's just me, my way or the highway. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. Amen. He said, anybody comes any other way than the way of Jesus, they're a thief and a robber. So Paul, the preacher, he's going to come representing that. In love, of course. He's not going to come holding up a sign saying, you're all going to hell and I'm the only one right. He's going to preach the gospel in love, but he has to tell the truth in love. You know, if you were a doctor and somebody came to you and they had cancer, would you tell them, no, you don't have cancer and call that love? Just because you didn't want to hurt their feelings or give them a bad day? No, if telling someone they had cancer is the truth as a doctor, that's what you do in love. Telling your next door neighbor they're not going to heaven isn't being a meanie. It's telling the truth in love because without Jesus Christ, they'll perish forever. And we need to let them know God has a purpose for their life. Amen? 
So he said, now look at this, verse 22, Paul stood up in the meeting of Areopagus, Mars Hill, that's what it means is Mars Hill. He stood up and he said, people of Athens, I see in every way you're very religious. We can look at our culture and go, oh yeah, you guys are very religious. Yeah, you're very religious. You love to sing songs, you know, about Jesus, Jesus, you know, Kanye West on his new album. Yeah, you're very religious, aren't you? And all of these different people in their books that come out and say, look to the higher power. Don't you think America could fall into that category right now that we look very religious? That if it comes to Christmas, aren't the majority of Christians, um, I should say a majority of Americans at Christmas time going to be in church? The majority of your friends are going to go, right? Would you say the majority of your friends are satanic? No, the majority of your friends are kind of religious. Now, they may not read their Bible every day. They may not even believe in what they really talk about. But if you get them to kind of, you know, express, what do you really think? They'll say, you know, I'm spiritual. You know, I believe there's a God. I believe in this and that. That was like these guys. And Paul says, and here's how I want you to get it right now. Paul's going to talk about their religion being false, but the relationship with God being true. You see, you can be religious but not have a relationship with God. You can go to church on Christmas and Easter and be called a creaster but never know who died and rose again for you. You, you can say God bless you after somebody sneezes because you're religious but never have a blessing in your life. Unless you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, religion won't do it. So Paul stands up and he says, guys, I can look around just like somebody can look at our culture and say, yeah, you all look really religious. Now look at verse 23. When I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to the cubs and to the bears. Hello, somebody. Oh, we don't have idols in America, do we? Yeah, we do. We just call them sports teams. We call it entertainment. We call Katy Perry our idol. But see, these people had an idol called an unknown God. They got so much into idolatry that they named the God of water, Poseidon, the God of the sky, Zeus, the God of this, Hercules, the God of this. You know. And now you can almost see them on TV shows and movies. And we make movies about these false gods. And they got so into idolatry that they're like, we don't know if there's any other gods. We, we have three, four hundred. We don't know if there's any other. Somebody came up with a great idea. Well, let's make an idol to an unknown God, just in case we forgot one, and he's out there, and we don't know who he is. That's how much they loved idols. They well, let's just make one. Literally, let's make one to the unknown God, just in case we skipped one. Now, what I love about Paul is as he sees their idols, just like I can look around and see the idols of my culture boating on Sundays at the lake. That's an idol. That $70,000 yacht they put in there, that's an idol for a lot of them. Nothing wrong with having nice things in life. I'm just saying for some people, they just bow down to that $70,000 yacht. That defines them. Some people bow down to their paycheck. They'll do whatever it takes to get that paycheck. Some people put their dreams before God. I'm going to do what I want to do and then have God follow my trail instead of putting God first and letting your dreams follow. So they had idols. We have idols. But I love about Paul is he points out this one idol that doesn't have a name that they called the unknown God that exposed their ignorance of idolatry. And look at what he says to him. He said, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God, verse 23. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Now, this is where he's going to bust it on them right now. He's going to teach them it's not about idolatry. It's not about philosophy. It's about God and his son, Jesus Christ. 
Now, I want to just pause right here. I, I got to pause here because now I want to stop preaching to the choir, and I want to preach to those that may not believe in God yet. When we think about our belief in God, think about that thought itself and ask yourself, where does that thought come from to believe in God? There's two different ways that thoughts come into our mind. There are cultural adaptations of a society that we begin to adopt over time that come into our thoughts and becomes normal. For example, we drive on what side of the road in America? Right. What side do they drive on in England? The left. So when you wake up this morning and you get in your car, which, way or which lane are you putting that car in? The right. But the people in England are putting it in what? The left lane. See, we have culturally adapted to what side of the road we're going to drive on. That's where that thought comes, on, uh, comes to us. These are culturally adapted ideas. Language is a culturally adapted idea. Why are, am I speaking English and not French today? Because this is culturally adapted. Uh, why are we wearing clothes today, not walking around naked with little loincloths on, you know? You know what I'm talking about, National Geographic magazines, people living out in the jungle. Why did we not come that way this morning? We, we came this way this morning because this is our culture, right? Was there any thought, and don't raise your hand if this is you because we don't want to know who you are, but was there really anybody who woke up this morning going, I'm thinking about going to church naked. I'm thinking about just putting on a little loincloth, letting it hang out, ladies. I'm letting it hang out. I'm coming. Guys are going to have the little G-string up in the, you know what I'm talking about. You know. Was there really anybody that, that seriously considered that? It's like clothes or this tribal loincloth. Nobody woke up this morning sensing that. Now, does, does tribal loincloth or clothes have a right or wrong it really doesn't because it's just culturally relative does driving on the right side of the road or the left side of the road is one right or wrong no is speaking english or french or swahili is one of them right and the other one wrong no so in cultural ideas and thoughts there's really not something called right or wrong but now do we put the belief of God in that category in cultural ideas or do we put the idea of God in what we call basic beliefs now basic beliefs are beliefs that we have despite culture and it transcends all cultures as people study this is called sociology as we study multiple cultures there's basic beliefs that everybody holds let me give you a couple there is a basic belief that humanity holds that we are actually existing in this world right now. Most people generally wake up and think to themselves, I exist. Have you ever woke up and said to yourself, I may be a brain in a scientist's jar on Mars in a vat, and he's pushing little programs to make me walk around like I'm in his sim city in his virtual world. Did you ever think that? Or did you just look at yourself in the mirror and go, here I am, I'm going to live my day. You believe reality itself is real, basically. It's not taught to you. It's a basic belief. It comes natural to you. And as a matter of fact, you couldn't truly function without basic beliefs. Here's another thing that we hold as a basic belief, not only our existence, but we also hold a basic belief that other people exist. Did you ever think that you could be possibly right now in a dream state like the Matrix and you might be the only real person that's a program that's functioning here, but everybody else is an illusion of somebody else's creating, meaning you're in the video game of the player, a first-person player, and everybody else is an illusion? 
The idea that other minds exist is what we call a properly basic idea. It's basic for me to believe that I exist, and it's also basic for me to believe you exist, that you're not an illusion that I'm dreaming of. How about another thing? Is morality just cultural? Can I kill my mom today and just say, well, I blame it on my culture. I'm starting a new culture called kill your mom culture. After she gives birth to you, you turn 36, you slaughter her, you eat her, you dance, and then you, you, then you celebrate. I, I could culturally start something like that. That's what Hitler was trying to do by exterminating the Jews. But did that change the properly basic idea of morality? Did his cultural shift of dislike for Jews take away their value as human beings? Okay, so look at this. We have cultural ideas, and we have properly basic ideas. Now, where does the belief of God fall into? Is this a cultural idea, or is this a properly basic idea? You see, I believe that the belief in God is a properly basic idea. That truly you and I couldn't have sense and a conscious mind without there being a God. Without us truly acknowledging that there's a God, we can't understand even sense and logic itself. Why doesn't a square circle exist? Why is there no such thing as a married bachelor? Why is it that logical things are logical? Why is it when we talk to each other, we expect each other to understand the law of non-contradiction? If you say to me, Joe, why weren't you at my house? And I say, but I was at your house, and I was working at the, at the church at the same time. Would you expect that to be a normal conversation if I said I could be at your house and at my church working at the same time? You see, we understand laws of logic. We understand things are contradictory, that A cannot be B if B and A have different qualities. Now, this may get a little philosophical for you, but I just want you to think about it as you think about your belief in God or maybe your lack thereof. If God and if the belief in God is not a properly basic idea that we all share, then what is the grounding of logic? Why does logic make sense? Do you think animals have discussions about logic? Do you think that creatures of instinct can actually control their instincts? They don't. I love what C.S. Lewis said. We may be able to point to hormones as a leading drive of having sex and, you know, our blood pressure or our temperament as a leading drive to our uh, anger and these kinds of things. But how is it we have choices over those instincts? You may feel an instinct to have sex, but how is it you make a choice whether or not to have sex or not? That's a conscious mind. But how can you explain a conscious mind without there being a God that gave you a soul? Because if you're just a body the body itself does not explain consciousness now right here at this point somebody may say to me pastor and remember i'm talking to somebody here that doesn't necessarily believe in god somebody may may now say to me they may say pastor i think you're just trying to trick us into believing god uh, in god because really you know i can disbelieve in god and still explain rationality i can explain morality and still believe in god but you know what that's not true Leading atheists understand that you cannot do such a thing. As a matter of fact, leading atheist Alex Rosenberg, who has a Ph.D. in science and philosophy, like the people we read in Paul's day, he was a, he's a philosopher, he's alive, and he's also a scientist, wanted to write a guide for atheism. 
This is the book. It's called The Atheist Guide to Reality, Enjoying Life Without Illusions. And do you know what he said life is? Do you want me to go through this with you and explain what an atheist says who's a scientist who understands the very nature of reality without God? You know what he says? He says that life is in itself meaningless, that we are nothing but animals, and that everything we hold on to is actually an illusion. Your family is an illusion. What you believe is valuable between you and your children is an illusion. And now think about this as I get ready to read his quotes. Think about this. If you don't believe in God, why does your family matter? No, really, seriously, think about that. If you don't believe in God, why is it your family matters? Because if your belief in your family gives you value for your family, but your belief dies when your mind dies, there's no eternal purpose, then your mind putting value in your family is just an illusion because that value you have only lasts as long as you last. So why does it matter now? Do we care what ants do? Do we care what animals do? Do we put the same kind of uh, uh, stock into the cow we're eating like we do into our children? How many here have ever had veal? Do you know what veal is? It's a baby calf. Well, what separates humans from eating our children? You may say, Pastor, well, that's just wrong. I believe you have to treat children such and such a way. Well, why do you have to treat children such and such a way? Who tells you that? Well, culture tells me that. Well, we just established culture really has no right or wrong. Some drive on the left. Some drive on the right. Some eat their children. Some don't eat their children. And then now somebody may say, well, pastor, I, I think I got you here. I, I think I got you. Here's the rule we should live by. Don't hurt anybody. And whatever you do, just be happy and don't hurt anybody. But I want to ask you a question. This idea of not hurting anybody, where did that come from? Who gave you the right to tell me not to hurt somebody? What if somebody says, I do want to hurt somebody? What if hurting somebody makes them feel better about themselves? Have you ever heard of psych uh, psychopaths? Don't psychopaths get some type of a thrill out of hurting people? Some of you are right now getting scared. You're like, Pastor, I thought I came to church. Why are you telling me all this? You know the reason why I'm telling you all of this is because I want you to understand that without God, our life is meaningless. And when Paul was speaking to these men, and he was saying to them that I'm going to describe to you an unknown God, this unknown God is actually the grounding of everything we do. And let me explain to you why idolatry wouldn't work as I keep trying to uh, look for this highlight that I have because I do want to share this with you. If somebody says, well... You know, Pastor, there's many gods. There's the Hindu uh, pantheon of gods. There is the, you know, the Mormon gods. Uh, there is the Buddhist understanding of everything is God. How do we know that your God is the only God? Well, first of all, we have to think of this. If we believe that there's multiple gods, so there's Zeus and then there's this God, there's Hercules, you know, the question now is who created those gods? Who created those gods? Now, if somebody says nobody created them, they all just happened to come into being, okay? So let's say there's 100 gods, and they all came into being. Now, which god is in charge? Which god has all the power? Which god is all-knowing? Because you can't be all-powerful and share all power with somebody else and still be all-powerful. And by definition, to be gods, you have to be all-powerful. 
And if they can't explain where the gods came from, they say that these gods are, are all uncreated, then why is there a hundred of them? Why isn't there a hundred and one? Why isn't there a hundred and twenty? So when people believe in what they call polytheism, it's actually a contradiction into itself. There can't be more than one God because God, by definition, is all-powerful. And then if everybody says they share that power and they get into an argument, now gods are fighting against each other and God is perfect and God would never contradict himself. Therefore, they could never fight and, and, and oppose each other. And in all religions of polytheism, Hinduism and uh, uh, Mormonism and all of these, the gods go against each other. Believe it or not, some people think Mormons believe in one God. No, Mormons are polytheists as well. Now, as we look then to what's called pantheonism, everybody say pantheonism. Somebody may say, well, you know what? Pantheism is the belief that everything is God. Okay, so we're not going to believe in multiple gods. We'll believe that everything is God. And I was in India, and they actually have uh, a belief of this as well. They're polytheists, and they also are pantheists. And so I said to him, hey, dude, do you believe in God? And you know what he did? He picked up the spoon, and he said, this is my God. Were you with me, Adam? Was that you that I was with? I was with one of our brothers. And you know what? He picked up the spoon, and he said, this spoon is God. Now, why would he say that? And that seemed crazy to us. Because in his mind, everything that is matter, everything that you see, including you, the spoon, matter. This whole world is made up of God. So God is the water. God is you. God is me. God is everything. But now we have a problem. If God is everything, then really technically God is nothing. And I want to explain to you what I mean by that. Because if God is everything, then that means God does not have a will in his own self. And if God doesn't have a will in his own self and everything is willed by him and he says no, to, he, you know, a will means I say no and yes, yes and no, like in your will. But if God doesn't possess a will, if he's just the force like on Star Wars, then how does God ever decide anything? He doesn't. And so everything becomes God in the sense that there is now no difference between God and his creation. And so everything, including God, doesn't exist. And you may say, Joe, you're just playing mind tricks on me. No, I'm telling you, if you study this out, you'll understand that, that if everything is God, then nothing is God and nothing exists. Now, we can't believe in many gods because that contradicts itself because one God would have to be in charge, one God would have to create the other gods. We can't believe everything is God because if everything was God, there would be no God at all because there would be no will. There would be no differentiation between what is good, what is bad, none of these things. And by the way, the second contradiction would be us as creatures. We ourselves have wills and we ourselves make decisions. And if God can't do that, then we're greater than God at least in one way because we can make decisions. But if God is everything, thing he can't make decisions are you guys tracking with me now when we get to the atheist way he says well pastor you know what my easy way around this is i'm going to disbelieve in every one of your gods i'm going to disbelieve in one god a monotheistic god i'm going to disbelieve in a plurality of gods and i'm also going to disbelieve in the pantheistic version of god if they believe that and there's no God, life now becomes meaningless. And this is what Paul was discussing. And I'll get this quote from Alex Rosenberg later. Turn with me back to this passage. And I want you to see this is what Paul was explaining to them. Acts 17, and I wish I could find that quote, and I so will. Turn with me back to Acts and see what he says. Did I go deep enough for you guys? 
Now go to verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at the objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you today. And that's what I proclaim to you today. The only solution of this dilemma of pantheism, polytheism, and atheism is theism, the belief in one God. One God that is uncreated, that has no shared attributes with any other gods, and that he himself possesses a will and a desire. So he himself is not his creation. He is separate from his creation. And if somebody is thinking, I forgot about deism, deism is very similar to pantheism, except pantheism says God is everything. Deism says God is nothing. He's outside of his creation. Both of them make a God powerless without a will. Human beings are greater than their God because our God has a will. Now look at verse 24. He says, I'm going to proclaim him. Somebody say, preach it. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life, breath, and everything. But listen, he is not your breath. He is not your body, but he gives you your body. Steve Jobs, he created Apple Computer, but he's not the Apple Computer. Are you guys tracking with me? He's one God. He's not many, and he's not his creation he's separate from it so as a creator he gives his creation these things look at it life breath and everything else don't you love paul he's like life breath and everything else now look at verse 26 from one man he created all the nations that they should inhabit the earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands Without God, do you know that racism is true? If evolution is true, racism is true. Because if we evolved from animals, then there has to be more evolved humans and less evolved humans. Don't we look at a chihuahua and a pit bull and go, one is more evolved than the other? One is better than the other? So isn't racism a product of evolution? Hitler was actually doing exactly what evolution teaches, survival of the fittest. Us Germans were better than these rat ape Jews. That's what he said. And he convinced the German people that they don't even deserve to have life. He convinced them like our culture has convinced us that unborn babies don't deserve life. And so he convinced the German people rationally and culturally to kill them in gas chambers. Of course, some stood against him. There was Germans that didn't all buy into that. But as he began to do that, we as the Western Front, we did a war, we had a World War II against him. But what was our point? Our point was every human being is made in the image of God. Even if Hitler would have won the war and taught it to his children and to the children and children and killed off everybody who dissented with him, he still would have been wrong. Jewish people are people. In the African-American slave trade, we said we, uh, the slave owner said we could treat them this way because they don't have souls. They are just like animals. We'll breed them like animals. Do you see what evolution produces in people's lives? Most people don't understand this, but evolution was one of the leading factors of the 1800 slave trade in America. Scientists, eugenics, people who worked with humans and DNAs promoted slavery because they said we're more advanced than African Americans. Lighter skin means we go further down the, the trail away from the animal kingdom, the apes and the monkeys. 
And yet we teach evolution to our kids today. And when they act like animals, kill each other like animals, have sex and abandon their children like animals, we wonder where the problem is. We've taught them they're nothing but animals. And then now we draw up our own boundaries. We say, oh, well, racism isn't true. We should be kind, you know, all of this. But if really we think about it, our scientists, they're lying to us sociably because they're afraid of the outcome. Because truly, if evolution is true, there's a race of humans that's more advanced than the other. There is a better race, and there is such a thing as survival of the fittest. When a lion comes into a, uh, into a jungle and he sees that there's a tiger there or some other creature, he kills it. He doesn't feel sorry for it. He takes over. When bugs come into my backyard and there's a little ladybug there and it doesn't want that bug there, they eat that bug. Why would it be any different with human beings? But yet God says, we're not many races we are one race, the human race. Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in his sight. There isn't different kinds of human beings. There's one kind of a human being, one kind, one race, the human race. And that's what Paul teaches. He says from one man, not one animal, not one ape-like ancestor, he said from one man he made all nations, the Asian, the African, the European, the Latino, the Indian, all the nations have come from Adam and Eve, that they should inhabit the whole earth. He marked out appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. Look at verse 27. God did this so that he would, that man would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any of us. So if the belief in God is a properly basic belief, not a cultural belief, then the evidence would be in every culture we would find belief in God. Every culture we would find a belief in God. If belief in God is a cultural belief that's simply just taught from one person to another, then it would stand true that we would find cultures that don't believe in God. But do you know that every single culture believes in God? And when we reach unreached people groups around the world, write this book down, Eternity in Their Hearts by Richardson. Eternity in Their Heart. Not only do we see unreached people groups know about God, have a basic belief in God, but their basic belief is similar to Christianity and to the belief of the Jews. In his book, Eternity in, in Their Hearts, he talks about missionaries showing up to tribes who have never seen a Westerner, never heard of a Bible, but when they go to that tribe, they find people there that had ancient prophecies telling them that someone would tell them about God's Son and the sacrifice He would make for them. You might think that's crazy. Look it up. Even throughout the Chinese dynasties, there were times when God would reveal himself and some of their alphabet and their letters reflect a belief in God. Our missionaries to China have discovered that in ancient China, as well as with the Aztecs, as well as with the people on the Indian continent of India, that when we reach unreached people groups, not influenced by mass culture, but isolated unto themselves, they have a basic belief of God, even if they believe in multiple gods, there's always one main creator God, 
All of these cultures have shared one thing in common, the story of the flood. Do you know that there's over 300 ancient cultures that share a story of Noah and the ark, a global flood? The Aborigines, the Aztecs, how is it they all know this? Why? Because we all came from Adam and Eve. And as one people, we knew God. And after the flood, we spread out to the different parts of the world. And people kept the belief in the God of the Bible. And that's why today Christianity grows eight times faster than the rate of birth. When we go into tribal places like Africa, Christianity outgrows Islam, any other system of belief. When we go into the unreached people of Mongolia and China, they accept Christianity. Why? Not just because it's rationally believable, but because in their culture there were stories of redemption. There were stories of a creator God. There were stories of sacrifice and practices to atone for their sin. And when we come and say, God sent his son Jesus to die for your sins so that you can be a child of the heavenly father, they say, that sounds like what I was taught in years past. And even Paul himself points to their idolatry. And now you know what he says? He says, you guys know it too. Because now he quotes one of their own poets and says, this guy knew about our God. Look at it. Look at it in verse 28. For in him we live and move and have our being, as some of your own poets have said. We are his offspring. Woo, snap. He says, you guys have become ignorant. You've turned your hearts towards idolatry. You're rejecting the properly basic idea to worship one God to turn to idols. And why would they do that? Why does the Bible say in Romans chapter 1, we all basically understand there's a God, we owe him our life, and we're going to be judged. Why do then people turn to idolatry? Why would good, smart, intelligent people do that? These Greeks were inventive. They were tremendous in politics and in expansion. Even the Romans, the aqueducts could go uphill, running water uphill. They were amazing. But why would they be so foolish to worship stones and worship created images? Well, why do we in America with the greatest expansion of science and going to the moon and do what we do? Why is it we have idols and turn our back on God? It's the same reason. We want to do it our way. Instead of acknowledging the one God and his one rules, we'll say, well, you know what, there's this one God with one rules, but there's this other God that likes to have sex, Aphrodite, I like that God. And then there's this other God that likes to beat up people and kill people. Oh, I want to go with that God, Hercules. And then there's this guy. And so what does idolatry become? Well, you know what? I like my job, so I'm going to live for my job. And I like this music star, so I'm going to kiss a girl because Katy Perry did it, and she said she liked it. And you know what? The, a scientist tells me that a baby doesn't become a human being till it comes out the womb, so I'll vote pro-choice and allow people to kill children in America. Why do we make idols? Because we want to be in control and not have the one God tell us what to do and Paul pointed them back and said hey you guys know about this God you're his offspring you're his creation and look at the next verse we live and move and have our being in him without him you wouldn't even be here now look at verse 29 
Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think it that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone in an image made of human design and skill. And that would be true. We've advanced since then here in America. We would say, okay, you're right. I don't believe this Buddha is actually an idol that lives and has a mind to hear my prayers. Yes, I understand my job in TV and entertainment won't satisfy me. We're smart enough for that. I get that. But you know what we think? We think that God is like us. And so what the biggest idol I see in American culture is not something we make and chisel and and worship like an outside person. I believe the biggest idol we worship in America is ourselves. I'm going to do what's right for me. I'm going to put myself first. I'm going to do what I want. And what do we begin to think to ourselves? We make a God after our own image. You ever heard somebody say this when we say, don't have sex before marriage because the Bible says you'll go to hell. And then somebody responds back, well, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't, that's not, my God wouldn't do that. Why? Because their God is a figment of their imagination made in their own likeness. Their God is just an extension of their ego. Only God can judge me. Only God can judge me. You hear people say that a lot too, right? Because people think when they get to heaven, God will be just like them. God will say to the fellows, wink, wink, of course. I knew pornography was going to be in your life. I mean, come on, that lusting thing, I didn't really mean it. I know you're a man. That's why I made you. You know, women, women, they're beautiful like flowers, right? You were just looking at the flowers. I've heard men tell me this. We think God's going to be up there and understand. Women and ladies and, and mothers here, we think God's going to understand. Yeah, you were so busy. You were taking care of your kids. You taught them ABCs, arithmetic. You didn't have to bring them to church. You know, just your love was enough. You know what? You didn't have to teach them my word. You know what? Having them watch Dora the Explorer, that's really what they needed, right? See, we make God just an extension of us. That Oh, yeah, God understands. God understands why I do this, and God understands why. Even though I'm breaking his law, He'll understand, and he'll judge me, and don't you judge me. You know, don't you, don't, no, no, don't you try to judge me, because only my God's going to judge me. But if we read a scripture in the Bible that says, hey, uh, this God's going to judge you on your cursing. No, don't judge me. Don't judge, no, I'm not judging you. The Bible says he's going to judge you on every profane thing out of your mouth. What do people then say then? They say, well, I don't think so. I don't think God's going to judge me like that. So who gets to decide in our mind in American culture how God actually judges? We decide how God actually judges. So not only do we push off God into some make-believe idol, but then we think God is so much like us that he will think just like us. But is that the God of the Bible? Look at just this quick scripture. Let's just pause here real quick. Look at Psalms 89.6. Look at Psalms 89.6. If you think God is like you, just you have to understand this God is holy. God is perfect. God is not just an extension of your ideas. You can't just make up your own God and say that's him. And you can't put words in his mouth. You know, do for yourself. You know, didn't the Bible say that? Do for yourself. No, the Bible didn't say that. Well, take one step to him. He'll take two steps to you. No, the Bible didn't say that either. You know? Well, he just loves everybody just the way we are. No, the Bible doesn't say that. Well, if I'm a good person, I get to go to heaven. The Bible doesn't say that either. 
I've heard people say that. Well, you know, if I'm just a good person, I get to go to heaven. You know, that's what Jesus said. You know, just be a good person. No, he didn't. He said, be born again. He said, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven unless you're born again. So look at how the Bible describes him. Look at Psalms 89.6. For who in the skies above can compare with the Lord? Who is like the Lord among the heavenly beings? In the counsel of the holy ones, God is greatly... See, do you fear God? See, if you don't fear God, you don't know God. See, if you don't fear him, you don't know him. No, no, me and God are buddies. No, you don't know him. You and your imaginary friend are buddies. Hello? You and Barney Jesus are buddies. But you ain't buddies with God if you don't fear him. You don't know him. Because in the counsel of his holy one angels that will make you wet your pants, fellas, you will wet your mantis if an angel showed up. You think Brock Lesnar is something. If an angel showed up, we would be wetting our pants. And the angel fears God. That angel fears God. He treads on holy ground. Some of the angels even cover their eyes when they're in his presence. And they admire him and worship him. Holy, holy, holy. And the word holy just means perfect in character. Perfect in character. And yet we think we're going to go to heaven and there's going to be a God that's like us. He's going to be, you know, that God that understands our sin and that God that really just doesn't judge any differently than how we judge. Well, same sex, they're in love, they should get married. Hey, that, that's how I think. Well, God must be okay with homosexuality. Hey, I'm not expected to raise a child just quite yet. Me and my girlfriend, we can't afford it. That baby's only a couple weeks old. Of course God understands that. You know what? I don't give to the church, but I certainly give to the Cubs game, and I certainly give to my car payment. You know, God understands I can't always give to church. You know what? God understands why I look at the woman across from my desk at work in lust. You know what? God understands why I gossip. We think God is just like us, but the Bible says no one is like him in his counsel, the holy ones. He is greatly feared. He is more awesome than all who surround him. Who is like you, Lord God Almighty? You are Lord Almighty, and your faithfulness surrounds you. He's not one of 20 gods like Transformers. He's not the Avengers and the Iron Man of Avengers. He is the only one of his kind. He himself is God. And he's not just a force. He has a will, and he has made it known through his son, Jesus. And he says, everyone, follow him. Turn with me to Psalms chapter 2. Psalms chapter 2. I'm going to end this message in just a moment, but please just give me your time here as we go to Psalms chapter 2. God is not like our imagination. Now, does he love? Absolutely. But does he judge? Yes, he does. And so if you claim to know his love, shouldn't you also know his judgments? Shouldn't you? Now, those of you here who say, well, I'm not sure if I believe in him yet, the question once again is now not for me to have to prove it. The question is for you to prove why your existence matters, matters at all. Because you have one of two choices. You're either going to have the properly basic belief that your life is meaningless or you're going to have the properly basic belief that God created me. The properly basic belief of my life is meaningless is irrationality and it cannot exist in the normal world. So you're only left with one rational choice. I did not create myself. Something did not come from nothing and I am not an animal. 
I'm a creation of God. And there isn't many of them. There's one of them. He's in charge. He's not everything. He's one thing, spirit, and he's commanded me by his will to live for him. Now look at Psalms chapter 2 because that's how I want to end this discussion. Because now you may say, you know what? I don't think I want to follow that, God. Look at Psalms chapter 2, verse 4. I want you to understand what our God says to you. We love you, but this is what he says to you. The one enthroned in heaven, what? <laughs> our God laughs at the atheists. We love the atheists. We're not here to mock you, but we're here today to tell you if you think our God in heaven is threatened by your disbelief or if you think that somehow he is in heaven fretting over your scientific discovery, if you think in heaven that somehow they're just, they're just so upset about your disbelief, you don't know our God. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them them in his wrath saying I have installed my king on Zion my holy mountain and I want you to understand this judgment day is coming to you whether you now believe it or not you can jump off this building and say I don't believe in gravity but gravity will come to you my friend you can live in this world and say I deny God God does not exist he will laugh and judge you and terrify you on that day verse 7 I proclaim the Lord's decree he said to me you are my son today I've become your father ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will break them with the rod of iron. You will dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, kings, be wise. You rulers, be warned on the earth. Verse 11, everybody shout it out. One, two, three. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule with trembling. Kiss the son, talking about Jesus, or he'll be angry and destroy you in his way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So you say, Pastor, hey, that's pretty harsh. That's the truth. You see, it's either true or it's not. For it not to be true leads to irrationality. Therefore, it's true. Now, going back to Paul, let's close it out. Are you guys ready for the closing? Here's what Paul said in verse 27. He said, God did this, created them of one man, spread them out to the, the different parts of the earth. He did this so that they would seek him, reach out to him, and find him, though he's not far from any of us. We live and move and have our being in him. Some of your own prophets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we shouldn't worship things that are made out of gold and stone, human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to what? To repent, for he set a day when he will judge the world with justice. Isn't that what we just read? By the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Now let me just say this, and we're going to close. You may say, Pastor, okay, monotheism sounds better than polytheism and pantheism and deism. Okay, I get it. But there's a lot of claims to who is the spokesperson of monotheism. Muhammad claims to be the last spokesperson of Allah, the monotheistic God. There's also different religions that have come up over time. You know, the Baha'is and such, and, uh, such religions as this, Jehovah Witnesses and different ones that now say we believe in one God, but we believe in a certain an interpretation, a certain way of understanding this God. What makes this Bible, this Jesus, any different? Paul gives you one proof. He raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical fact. Let me give you four things to consider about Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Number one, all historians know that he was crucified. 
This is not a mythological man that walked the earth like Krishna, where they believe he was a blue man and doing different things upon the earth. Jesus is not a mythological God. He was a literary, a literary, literal person that walked the earth. <laughs> he was a literal person. Yes, he was. He was a literal person, and he walked the earth. And historians know, secular, non-Christian, atheists, doesn't matter who they are. They know he lived and he was crucified. Two facts. He lived, he's a real person. Two, he died. The third thing they agree upon is they can't find his body. They cannot find his body. They cannot. They, we know where Muhammad's body is. We know where Buddha's body was buried. We know where the Confucius. We know where all these men's bodies were buried. But they cannot find Jesus' body. Even the Da Vinci Code, all these lies they've tried to come out in the media, they cannot find his body. There, there is no evidence of where his body is. And the fourth thing is 500 documented followers said they saw him ascend to heaven and then died for the belief, not that he lived somewhere off in the sky they would see him one day. They died for the belief in the Roman Empire that they had saw the resurrected Christ. The question upon their death sentence was, did you or did you not see him? Is he alive? Did you see him raised from the dead? And the Jewish sources said that they stole the body, bribed the Roman soldiers out of the grave, and then burned and hid it and started the myth that he rose from the dead. But what dispels that myth is people died believing they saw him, and there's no undercover ex uh, uh, exposing of a conspiracy ever of one follower ever saying in all of history this was all a lie. Do you understand that? Think about all the conspiracies that have been covered up and discovered over the world, all of these different things, but not one of these men to the point of death ever said, oh, whoa, whoa, hold on, forget all this Jesus stuff. We put him over here, man. I'll show you where he's at. Or Peter lied to us so he could become the next pope. Hello. No, they died saying, no, I saw him. I saw him. Roman soldiers would convert to Christianity while they were burning Christians alive because they would see angels rejoicing in the flesh with these martyrs going to heaven. And within 300 years, the Roman Empire was brought to its knees and these idols were destroyed and Christianity became the state religion. It transformed the entire world. The resurrection of Jesus, he lived, he died. They don't know where his body at, but our disciples told us where it's at, amen? He rose on the third day. Will you stand to your feet, give him a hand clap of praise? Come on, somebody. Ban, would you come? Praise him. As we're finishing out this passage, now watch this. Paul says he raised him from the dead. That's the proof. This is how I tell you Jesus is the only one. Look at verse 32. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. Sneered. To say sneered. That word just kind of says the attitude, doesn't it? Sneered. He said, resurrection from the dead. We're so smart. We're such great philosophers. We're great educational people, man. And this guy just told us his Savior raised from the dead. Is that not now, today, in our culture, the deciding point? Think of it. Because if Jesus really raised from the dead, you owe him your life. If he didn't raise from the dead, then he's not deserving of our worship. So what makes the unknown God revealed and available for us today? 
Jesus. And what makes Jesus so special? His resurrection. He was the only one that raised himself and ascended to heaven. Some people were prayed for in the Bible, raised from the dead, but he raised himself. The Bible says, I don't let, uh, no one takes my life, he said. I lay it down and I take it back. When he was in front of the judges, they said, uh, Pilate said to him, you know, you know, are you a king? Is this your kingdom down here? And he said, if this was my kingdom, a legion of angels would come down here and destroy all of you. He said, but you will see the Son of Man come with his angels of heaven to establish his kingdom. See, when Jesus walked the earth, he didn't try to take over the world. He came to die for the world so that when he comes and rules upon this earth, he has people just put it up there, please, uh, Brother Andrew. Revelation 21, 27. Do you remember I said at the very beginning the Greeks were religious, but they lost, they didn't have a relationship? That's what they lacked? Uh, Paul is telling them, the gods you don't know, I know. And he raised from the dead. You know what the last book says it's all about? Because he said he put them in all, you know, the Bible says he created the man and set him out in these different places that, God, that he would reach out and touch God and find him, that, you know, that we live and move and have our being in him. Paul was saying all of that. But look at what it says here in Revelation 21, verse 7. 21, verse 7. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my... Come on, somebody say children. I will be their God. Revelation 20. Put it up there, please. I want everybody to see this. Verse 7. I will be their God. I don't even know where this is at. Yeah, come on, put it up. I want you guys to see this. But it's not a man's word. We have a different, 21, 21. Look at your neighbor and say, Jesus loves you. Come on. I want you guys to see this before we go. Thank you for your patience. Let's read Revelation 21, verse 7. One, two, three. Those who are will inherit all this, and I will be their God. They will be. Okay, you know what Alex Rosenberg, I got the quote now. You know what he said? The atheist wrote this book, teaches in universities, Ph.D. in science, Ph.D. in philosophy. Here's his guide to the atheist reality. Is there a God? No. What is the nature of reality? Whatever physics says it is. What is the purpose of the universe? There is none. What is the meaning of life? Ditto, there is none. Why am I here? Just dumb luck. Does prayer work? Of course not. Is there a soul? Are you kidding me? Is there free will? Not a chance. What happens when I die? Everything pretty much goes on as before, except without you. What's the difference between right and wrong, good and bad? There is no difference between them. They're all the same. Why should I be moral? Because it's better than being immoral. Is abortion, euthanasia, suicide, paying taxes, foreign aid, or anything else you do in life forbidden, permissible, or obligatory? No, anything goes. Let's read this word right here. Does it say anything goes right there? Anything goes. Hey, Hitler, anything goes. Hey, Southside, 500 murders last year. Anything goes. 
going. This is what life is without God. What is love and how can I find it? You know what he says love is? Love is the solution to a strategic interaction. you got to multiply this human race anyway. Don't look for it, it'll find you. Is there any purpose or meaning of history? None at all. See, when we come to this church and we proclaim those scriptures and those things that we do, what we're proclaiming is a worldview. And if you're here today and you don't understand your purpose, and can we close with that banner up, please? If you don't understand your purpose, you can start today by understanding your creator. And the unknown God to you, the one you don't know today, wants to know you. All you have to do is reach out to him. He's not very far from you. You've been living and moving and breathing already because of him. And how do you reach out to him? You reach out to his son. And what makes his son so special is he died on the cross for your sins. And I'm saying this in closing now. Have you ever realized how life always ends in death? Think about that. Life always ends in death. With Jesus, you get eternal life. When your body dies, you live on. That's the hope for your family. That's the hope for why you go to work tomorrow. Because you do all things as unto Him. That's the hope for your children and what you teach them. That's why this life matters. Is because He made you for that purpose. And He created you with gifts and talents. And Jesus died so that those issues in your life that separate you from Him can now be forgiven. And it doesn't matter what sins you commit. If you'll take him at his word and believe their sins, not argue, admit pornography is a sin, admit adultery is a sin, admit stealing and lying is a sin, you will see what life in the kingdom of God is like here on earth as it is in heaven. You will experience righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Ghost. You will know an inner peace that passes all your understanding. You will have the fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. This is God's promised us. And when this earthly shell dies because of the curse of sin, it will die. You will be with him. And as he raised from the dead, he will give you a resurrected body to be with him forever. So it's your choice. There's only really two options for you now. Do you deny God and meaning in this life? Or do you accept him in his son, Jesus? Would you close your eyes with me right now? And those who have accepted him, would you raise your hands and just thank him right now for what he's done in your life? Altar workers, would you come? Come on, those who have already accepted him, just raise your hands and say thank you, Jesus, for the cross, for forgiveness. Hallelujah, God. Thank you for loving me. Thank you, God, for forgiving me. Come on, Christians, those who know him already, we're just starting to praise him. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I believe there's meaning in this life. I believe there's meaning. 
I don't believe in many gods. I believe in one God, the creator of all things. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I believe in you, Jesus. You're the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the bright and morning star, the Alpha and Omega. Hallelujah. The Rose of Sharon. Oh, the Lily of the Valley, the Good Shepherd, the Great I Am. Hallelujah. The Son of Man, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. You are everything today to us, Jesus. Now with every head bowed and eyes closed, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, don't let us get our praise on without you accepting him and loving him yourself. You may be religious, but that doesn't mean you have a relationship with him. You may celebrate Martin Luther King Day, but that doesn't mean you know him. And you may have gone to church on Christmas and Easter, but that doesn't mean you know him. The question I want to ask you with every head bowed and eyes closed is, do you know Jesus today and his Father as your Father? Is Jesus your King and the Heavenly Father your Father? Not just your religion, but is he your God? If not, I want you to pray this prayer with us. We're all going to pray it together, congregation, with them. But if it's for you today, you know God is speaking to you. Pray this from your heart. Mean it today. And you will experience what we're talking about. God is who he said he is, and there's no one like him. Congregation, let's say this together with those who are confessing Christ, maybe for the first time. Say this with me. Dear Jesus, I believe in you that you died on the cross for me and you rose from the dead. I believe that you've forgiven my sins and you will make me new. Transform my life today and help me to live for you all the days of my life. Now just raise your hands, everybody here, before we go and talk to Jesus about how you want to live. Come on, if you want your life to change, ask him to change you. If you've been a Christian for 18 years and you still know you're working on stuff, like me, come on, ask him to keep moving in your life. So whether you just prayed it for the first time or the 101st time, come on, just ask the Lord to give your life purpose and meaning to transform you, to make you like him as his child. Before we leave, let us all ask God to bless our lives. Make me the husband you want me to be, the father. Oh, God, make me the preacher, the pastor, God. I want to be a good son to my parents, God. Oh, Lord, lead me in my day-to-day -day job, God, what I do for you, Lord. Let it count, God. Bless everyone here, their jobs, their families, their life, what matters to them, Lord. Woo! Can you hold somebody's hand as we get ready to close out of this place? As you're holding their hand, just look at them and say, you're a child of God. Come on, I'm going to believe that every one of you said that prayer today. Look at your other neighbor and say, he just loves you. He loves you so very, very much. Father, I pray you bless us today as we go our separate ways. God, may we never forget what we learned here. The unknown God has been revealed to us through your son, Jesus. Help us to live for you now every day of our life. In Jesus' name we pray. Can everybody say amen? Can you bless them? Come on one more time. Give them a shout. Hallelujah. Woo!
you're dismissed. But if you need prayer for salvation, for healing, anything, these altar workers are here. We're going to keep worshiping. Have a great week. But don't leave out if you need prayer. God bless you. We'll see you next time. Hallelujah.